0: Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll probably mention this several times during our message this morning. Uh, This is gonna be one of those Bible studies that um, uh, because of the culture and the times that we live in today, um, you have to make your mind up even before we start that either you believe what this book has to say about certain issues or... Um, what our society has conformed the church and society into being. And believe me, this is one of those studies that I got something to offend everybody. Okay? <laughs> so with that, with that in view, um, uh, we're going to be dealing with the subject of, well, let's just get into it. Paul's already... Um, uh, read our text. So what I'd like to do, I think the setting why Paul deals with these issues, it's important that we realize who he's talking to and the culture that the, the church of Corinth has come out of. So I'm going to do a little mini-review right here, and I want to remind you that Paul planted... Um, the Church of Corinth, on his uh, second missionary journey. He was there approximately 18 months. That would have been 51, 52 AD. At its time, it was the most important city in Paul's day. I want that to settle in. It was a commercial city. Remember, it had the two ports, and I put a picture of the canal up there. Eventually, that was made. So extremely prosperous um, and very idolatrous. They had no mention of the gospel until Paul came. And it's interesting, the psalm that we read this morning talking about idols and worshiping idols. We'll be getting into that in chapter eight. Um, But I'm going to put something... The church was really pulled out of pagan society. And I want to put something back on the screen just to remind you just how pagan it was. These are the ruins of um, Corinth. And again, I've pointed out before that tall mountain in the background. On top of that was the temple to Aphrodite. And what would happen on a weekly basis is 1,000 of these (laughs) um, quote-unquote temple prostitutes would come down into the city of Corinth. And basically, that was their means of supporting and maintaining. Um, And you can't call it anything less than prostitution, but they saw it as a form of worship. Um, Something similar to that, just coming to my head right now, is right um, before Balak was trying to convince Balaam to curse the children of Israel because they had wiped out everybody before them. The last one to be wiped out would have been Moab and Balak. So he hires Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And every time he tried to do it, he'd go to a high place and and he's about to curse and then he'd say, oh, how beautiful are the tents of Israel and how God loves his people. And Balak would get all ticked off. He says, I didn't call you up here to bless them. I called you up here to curse them. And um, um, what happened, he says, look, I can't curse them. God won't let me, but I'll give you some advice how about if we bring some of our Moabitess young girls down and introduce them to some of your men and we'll show you how we worship and again it was all adultery fornication and in doing so God did curse his own people because they fell into that. I can't curse them this way but I'll give you some advice and that was the advice of Balaam to Balak and sure enough I don't know what the thousands were, but it was into the thousands that died as a result of that. So they at least knew it was wrong, okay? Imagine a culture and a society that all you've known your whole life is there's our temple, and the temple priestesses are gonna come down, and we're gonna worship our way. And you can allow your imagination to race with that one. The city was 700,000, two-thirds of which were slaves. So that tells us it was very, very prosperous. And um, I don't know, it just seems to me that the Bible does warn against wealth um, because it can create greater temptations. It can create power. It can puff people up and have attitudes, as we're going to see here. That'll be addressed in chapter eight. So Paul found it very hard to keep Corinth out of the church. The pagan lifestyle had a profound influence on the church. And this morning, we will look at four main topics. Principles for the married life. Uh, Many of these um, probably... We not married, I imagine some were i'm sure many of them took advantage of the slaves that they had, and then we 'll number two look at principles for the unmarried going to get sidetracked and talk about a controversial subject we call the age of accountability. We had a baptism last week, and it was wonderful. <laughs> And what a blessing it was to uh, uh, see these people, uh, the joy in their face and um, the fellowship that we had. It was great. But we don't have infant baptism. The Bible does not teach infant baptism. It's always believe first and then be baptized. And so that's what we did last Sunday. Beautiful day for it. So a little sidetrack, and I'm going to read an article by Terry James addressing this very issue because in chapter seven, um, some have misinterpreted verse 14, and um, I'll address that when we get to it. And then finally, uh, the fourth topic that we will look at comes from chapter eight, a completely different change of thought and subject as it deals with the principles of liberty and um, how it might, your personal liberty that you have, but how it might be a stumbling block um, to others. It's actually a different study within itself, and the only reason I'm doing it is when I sat down to uh, study, I got my mind in seven, and just gonna go through the whole chapter verse by verse we'll do that on Wednesday night because when I opened up my wisdom for today um, it for that particular day it is First uh, Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 <laughs> and I thought nah, that's more than a coincidence so we're going to tackle the first 13 verses of that as um, another topic as we make our way through God's word so with that much of a A little bit introduction again. It's important that we understand the culture. They never had any, they knew nothing else except for the culture that they were raised in. Verse one. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, we might just read right over that. But think about you only being brought up in the Corinthian culture. And everybody's going, say what? <laughs> don't? What do you mean, don't touch a woman? That's what we do here. And so I imagine this, as he begins to teach principles for the married life, he is saying it's, it's not good to do that. It stirs arousal and so forth and leads to immorality. So this one verse is a study within itself, but again, remember, it applies to all of us, but especially in this particular culture, this would have been, are you kidding? All right, verse two, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, singular, and let each woman have her own husband. Well, um, some of them are thinking. Um, this is uh, meaning we can only have sexual relationships with one person. This is gonna be the mindset of, this is very, very new th- thinking for the, for the church at Corinth. Um, married, not living together, but married. One husband, one wife. In verses 3 through 6, it tells us, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now let's just think this through. Um, as a husband and wife and um, having natural hormonal drives. Uh, We have um, times where, um, how do you say it tactfully? One is in the mood and one isn't, put it that way. And um, what Paul is basically saying here is um, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your husband. And husband, your body doesn't belong to you It belongs to your wife, and so if you're in the mood, don't go say, honey, I have a headache tonight. (laughs) That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta find humor somewhere in this study. (laughs) I'm just getting warmed up. So then we have this change of thought. There is one exception to this rule of with one person being in the mood and the other person not. And that's in verse five. Do not deprive one another except with consent. So now you're in agreement that you're going to hold off on your intimacy for a time. That you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you sexual urges and drives um, as you know can build and so on and so forth and so here he's saying there is an exception to this rule and it comes with the idea deprive yourself of the pleasure of intimacy to seek the Lord about a big decision you have to make Uh, example I've just been offered a major job change, and I don't know what to do, honey. What should we do? Well, you talk it through, and you think, um, we need to hear from the Lord on on this one. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna set aside intimacy for a season. It says here for a, a period of time, not too long, and we're gonna pray, and we're gonna fast. And we're gonna set aside the intimacy so that we could hear more clearly. The Bible says when the body is weak, the spirit is strong. And that's the idea that we have here. So notice they're in agreement, and um, they fast and they pray until they hear from the Lord. And the Lord says, you're supposed to take that job. Or the Lord says, you're not supposed to take that job. Or it could be any issue. But the point is that you deny the one so that you can hear more clearly from the other. Is everybody with me on that? So there is an exception to what we just read in verses three through six. I found it interesting, I was reading about um, um, Paul. Paul had a gift in seven through nine. He says, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Peter was married, and then I was, I can't remember who I was reading, but it gave the, the, um, um, implication that all the apostles and disciples were married and um, I found that interesting I know that John had his own home because he said he went to his own home Paul on the other half on the other hand had this gift that God had given to him uh, to remain Um, this isn't in my notes either but I I think I'm going to go there anyway Um, and that's with um, Peter and being given the keys to the kingdom after receiving a divine revelation from the Lord and he asks the question who do men say that I am well some say you're Elijah some say you're Jeremiah some say you're John the Baptist well who do you say that I am and it was Peter says you're the Christ You're the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter. Um, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And as a result, he was given the keys. Now, I've been to Rome. I've seen Peter with the keys. And he was the, the, the first vicar of Christ, representing, literally, Jesus Christ in that sense. Well, What I find interesting about that is the first pope was married. (laughs) Let it say again. And what is one of the conditions for priesthood? Celibacy. And how many billions and billions of lawsuits have gone on over the years over people who want to serve the Lord with an honest heart? They're simply ignorant of the scriptures. And uh, how many families have been destroyed because you don't have the gift of celibacy, but you want to serve the Lord. So, okay, I'm celibate. Yeah, but me closed doors is a whole other thing that's taking place. And I know all you know that, but to me, the irony of it all that the very first pope was married. Remember, Jesus healed Peter's wife in, in Capernaum. And uh, the other disciples were married also. But Paul had the gift in verses 7 through 9. Now the principles for the married are verses 10 through 16. Now to the married, I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Um, when two people get married, you actually have two sinners getting married. <laughs> and with that, even being born again, there will be times of disagreement and, and um, loud discussions and um, uh, but there's only one ground rule for divorce and that's adultery and um, I don't know, I I have an issue with um, um, Christian counseling. I had a couple in the office getting married and um, I told them when they came in for Christian counseling, I said well, the first thing I always tell people when they come in is I hope you're not coming in for my opinion because I only have really one book that I use for counseling and it's not my opinion, it's this book. And so that's what we use for Christian counseling. Pastor Chuck has written one also that, uh, that we have given out um, to people. But those are the only grounds. Biblical. Um, Biblically, and that's first laid out here in verse 11. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Now, we've just switched gears from Paul sort of giving his opinion, and then he's saying, but um, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. So what he just said, verse 10 um, and 11 directly from the Lord and then he says verse 12 um, but to the rest I not the Lord say if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to dwell with him let him not divorce her so we all know people um, neither one of them were saved and all of a sudden one of them comes home and says honey guess what I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior today. And um, she's thinking, there goes our party time or something along those lines. So you got one who's saved and one who isn't saved. And um, it goes on to tell us, it says, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And then this very controversial verse in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean but now they are holy. Very controversial verse. And whenever you have a verse that's controversial, you have to look and say this is controversial. Um, Is there any other scriptures that would settle the issue? And the answer is absolutely yes. Let me put it to you this way. Um, Every person of their own free will has to make up their own mind whether or not they're going to become a Christian. Just because you're saved doesn't mean your wife is automatically saved. And some people put that here And then they actually tie it into the children where it goes on to say, otherwise your children uh, would be unclean, but now they are holy. Well, this brings up the whole um, subject. I'm gonna read back down to 16 and then come back to verse 14. But if the unbeliever departs, in other words, the husband says, I'm not, I want to, I want to, Hang, hang out with my old buddies. Um, did I say the husband was saved or the wife was saved? You weren't listening. <laughs> okay, the husband is saved and the wife is not. And she wants to go party with her old friends. Well, basically, um, it's now saying, I don't want this lifestyle. You do, so I'm out of here. And basically, Paul's saying that's okay, but if an unbeliever departs, Let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether or not you will save your wife? Um, I know people, women, Stan and Linda, if you're watching, hi guys, they're up north now. Linda played for Stan for 19 years and um, she was faithful in praying for him and we had a trip to Israel planned and um, she wanted to go. Stan didn't want to go to Israel but he sure wanted to see the pyramids and our side trip happened to be going to Egypt to see I, th- I think the Egyptian Cairo Museum is one of the greatest museums on planet earth and if you ever have a chance take it in but Stan said I want to go too not because he wanted to go to Israel he wanted to go to see the pyramids so what he had to put up with for two straight weeks is um, every site that we went to a bible study people getting up and giving their personal testimony how they got saved and then eat three meals a day with us and hang with born again Christians for two weeks that's all it took (laughs) Stan's walking with the Lord today his health is failing him a little so we need to to pray for them so uh, if you have a husband who's not saved or a wife who isn't saved don't give up on him keep praying for him And, and they still have a free will All right, let's go back to verse 14 and I will do a little sidetrack here on the age of accountability. And I'm not gonna read the whole article because it's lengthy, but it's by Terry James from Prophecy Line and uh, the issue that he deals with here is the age of accountability. And um, somebody wrote him a letter dealing with 1 Corinthians 7.14 um, because this person feels that um, um, the children, one of them, if the one parent is saved will be raptured and the other one won't and so forth, and that's basically the argument. Um, and he comes right out and says... quotes the scripture and he he said I replied that he had touched on a topic that is a hot issue with yours truly in other words he's taking exception to this thought that um, because you have Christian parents one is or one isn't and they both are that if it's only one is then um, they would be raptured, implying that the other one might not be. And so what Terry James is basically saying here is this is a no-brainer for me. And um, I'll just quote part of it. Um, Children who have died physically and children who will be taken in the rapture have in common the fact that they were and will be instantly with the Lord this is because they are seen in God's mercy economy of innocence, considering uh, the factor as dealt with in this treatment on the subject. More importantly, it is an individual matter. God deals one-on-one, not collectively or corporately with the salvation issue because the parents are, are, are saved, when that person reaches the age of accountability, that doesn't automatically bring them into the salvation issue. It's a one-on-one, and he uses a word, I like this, the economy of innocence. Well, what is the economy of innocence? Well, it happened to King David. He had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. They had a child as a result of it. And as a result, the child died. That was one of the consequences for David's sin. And when David prayed, he prayed this. He said, I will go to him, but he will not come back to me. And by saying that, he was saying that David's going to heaven, and he's saying that's where my child is. And the idea of innocence, I was trying to think of an example of this, of uh, on a personal level, the age of accountability, when is it? A lot of discussion about it. A lot of people think it's around 12 or 13, primarily because in Israel, they have what's called the bar mitzvah. Everybody familiar with a bar mitzvah? It's when a man, when they consider that young teenage boy, that he's now old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, and he is allowed to study with the other rabbis and he is considered um, biblically a man at that age. So some people put the age of accountability there. I don't think you can put an age on it because, um, oh girls you're gonna love this, I think girls are more mature than guys at that age. (laughs) No amens from the girls, come on. (laughs) And um, um, I I, I thought about it this way. Um, A dad comes home, and he sees this five-year-old boy who had found the family gun in the drawer. And he comes out, and and he's holding it, and their dog, Lassie, is laying dead on the floor. And dad comes in and says, What happened? He says, Daddy... I was holding this, and it went bang. And then Lassie won't wake up. What's your point, Dwight? The, the boy was innocent. He had no idea what he was doing. And if it was a human being, would it be tried in a court of law or, or whatever? Not in God's economy. In other words, where is that line? I think it's different. And I won't want to be God, <laughs> where I say, okay, you just, you just crossed the line right here. Now you're accountable. Up until this day, you weren't accountable, but now you are accountable. I am with Terry James on this one. It's a no-brainer. Um, you are held accountable when you come to the age of accountability, and that's why we call it the age of accountability. All right, if you want to research that more, um, please, uh, Um, continue to go on God's order in marriage would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 which is just a couple pages away and this is where it's going to get touchy 1 through 12 1 Corinthians 11 imitate me just as I imitate Christ now I praise you brethren that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I have delivered them to you but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered covers dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her uh, head uncovered dishonors her husband for that is one and the same as if her Head were shaved, for a woman is not covered. Let her also be shorn, but if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, I let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, for man is not from woman, but woman. For man, here's where we start getting politically incorrect. (laughs) We're just getting warmed up. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. You ever wonder why you see a Mennonite or an Amish people with coverings on their head? That's where they get this from. So why aren't the women here covered with heads? Let's finish reading. Nevertheless, neither is a man independent of woman or a woman independent of the man. For as the woman was from the man, even so the man also is through the woman, but all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, in verse 14, I actually had this verse quoted to me um, when I first got saved because I had long hair. And I was the only guy in the church who had long hair. And I had this guy come up to me, and he said, Haven't you ever read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 14? And I go, Yeah. And he said, well, let me read it to you. Does not even nature itself teach you that a man who has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But a woman who has long hair, it is a glory for her. Uh, hair is given to her for a covering. And he said, there. Does, do you understand what that means? And I said, yeah, but did you read the last verse? And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, let me read it for you. But if anyone seems to be contentious, and he was being contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So what we're saying here is not a law. But uh, Judy and I like to watch cowboy shows. And somebody's always getting killed in a cowboy show. And they're always uh, having a funeral somewhere. And as soon as they start reading the Bible, what do the cowboys do? Take the hat off. And um, not too many cowboys around today, (laughs) but um, that's God's um, um, uh, order here. Uh, Let me pipe in here saying with this order, we all know that the Bible teaches that there's neither male nor female, slave or free, right? Right? So we're not talking about an order of God's love for an individual um, because we are all one in Christ. Good place for an amen. So um, we're just talking about some facts of a woman's role versus a man's role in society. And I'm going to take it a step farther and... um, have you turned to and asked a question, "Why is this order? Turn to First Timothy, chapter two, and verses nine through fifteen. In like manner, also that the women adore themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. But what is proper for a woman's professing godliness with good works? Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and self-control. There are not to be woman pastors. There were no women as apostles. And uh, having said that, We're having a woman's retreat next weekend, Green Lake. Um, Debbie Bryson's coming out. Her husband, George, is gonna be with us next Sunday here at Calvary. And um, do we not have Mary come up and give prophecy updates? And do we not have Ruth? Ruth, you're sitting over there somewhere. Does not she teach? Her and Donna Rathke um, are teachers. They're very, very good teachers, but they're not up here behind the pulpit. Those are two different issues, and Paul tells us why, and um, how politically incorrect is that in the times in which we live today. I see in society women taking more of a prominent position when the men seem to be taking a less and less position. More men are staying at home, being the keepers of the home, and more women are going out on the workplace. Turn with me, I'm going to name some names here because there are women pastors that are out there today. Beth Moore from Green Bay, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Joni Lamb, Lisa Beaver, Lori Baker. Um, A number of small churches have a combination of husband-wife co-pastoring together. The Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Church of Christ, Elka, A Lutheran church, the ELCA, ordained women to be in pastors. And now I ask the question again at this time, um, who's influencing who? Is the church influencing society or is society influencing the church? Do you know that all the way up to The Feminine Mystique and who wrote it. Um, Up until 1960, I'm guessing somewhere around in there, do you realize it was unthinkable that mom would be anything but but a homemaker? Turn with me to Titus chapter two. Titus two, picking it up in verse one. Titus two. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience, and the older women likewise that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, what's the next word? Homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands that the word of God will not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be uh, condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Let me get a little sidetracked here, and um, when did this all start to change? Well, I'm gonna put a picture up on the screen right now of Mary Tyler Moore. That's actually a, a bronze image of her in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can't see what she's throwing in the air, but you old-timers, you know what she's throwing in her air. She's throwing her hat. I'm out of the house. I'm in the workplace. And it set a trend. But I gotta tell you, for the first 6,000 years, overall, in general, it was just natural. Talking about what's natural and what's not natural is that the women um to their credit are much more sensitive um, in housemaking uh, much more sensitive i like to compare men and women, um, men being an a and w glass and a woman being a fine vase from France, and that they 're two completely different natures with two completely different job descriptions Adam because you said the ground is cursed now you're going to have to work it by the sweat of your brow that's the, that's your job what was Eve's um, penalty well now when she got pregnant it was going to hurt to have babies implying that it, before that it didn't wasn't going to hurt if you had a baby but clearly throughout every generation you know the saying is um Who's wearing the pants in the family? Is that one of the terminologies today? And in some places, it's not the man. And um, uh, it was unthinkable for a long time, before our maybe maybe not just generation, but the the wives always wore dresses, and that's just the way it is. So again, having put this up, um, let me say this. Is this implying that men that women are inferior to men? I'd say, I'd take it a step farther. And uh, in my own personal case, um, I believe my wife is pretty close to having a photographic memory. When she's around, I don't need my Blue Letter Bible, okay? Because I'm I'm thinking, where's that scripture? Where's that scripture? I know it and I, I know this much of the verse. And I say, honey, where is, and I'm not kidding, eight or nine times out of 10, she will give me book, chapter, and verse in the Bible, the whole Bible. And um, so, (laughs) it's true. The marriage the same way. Both of them have that, um, that photographic type memory and God has just given them a special gift in that area. They're just different gifts. Men have gifts and the woman has gifts and God is not a respecter of either one. He clearly says so. There are neither male nor female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but we're all one in Christ. It's not a matter of God loving one above the other, but it's a a matter of, um, of how God actually established this. Take it, uh, oh, having said that, uh, along with Mary Tyler Moore, Ed Asner died um, a couple of weeks ago. You know who he was? That was Mary Tyler Moore's boss on the show. I found out he was Jewish. <laughs> yep, his name was Yitzhak Asner. Uh, born in Kansas City, Kansas. And, of course, um, um, He won several academies, but he was probably best known for his role on the Mary Tyler Moore Show that I believed, along with the feminist mystique, was a game changer in the society that we live today. And how different you are as a congregation and have been taking a biblical view and say, I see what society's into, but I know what the word of God says. When it comes down to that, I'm wrong, and the Bible's right. Good place for an amen. You think it'll cause controversy? Absolutely. Absolutely. I could just hear some of the live streamers click. (laughs) All right, I've heard enough. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through likewise you wives be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe in other words you're being watched your chaste conduct accompanied by fear do not let your beauty be of the outward adorning of the ranging of the hair, the wearing of gold and putting on a fine apparel. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Now we're talking about the temperament of the godly woman of um, uh, uh, being gentle and quiet and in the sight of the Lord. You know what I think of when I read the scripture? That um, my personal conviction is I don't believe for one second that we should have a woman in military gear on the front lines of any war. And if you think otherwise, that's fine. You can think that way, but that's the way I think. And it's not that I'm afraid that they're um, not gonna be able to shoot a gun right or anything like that. Uh, to me, it's not the issue. This is the issue. You know, when men go out to battle, they go out to kill people. And my mentality as a man, I mean, with all the stuff that's going on in Australia, they're going into people's houses and jabbing them and so on and so forth. And um, uh, my attitude with with that is if anybody comes to my house and they're going to jab, going to jab the, jab my wife, well, they're going to get jabbed first. (laughs) You use your own imagination with that. And that's because I'm a man, and I think like a man, and that's not going to happen in my household, period. So we have here this personality traits of a woman. And now for an example, for in this manner in former times, a holy woman who trusted in God also adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Example As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Likewise, you husbands dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the stronger vessel. Well, today it is <laughs> in some clay cases. No, to the weaker vessel. They're built different. Their muscle structure isn't manly. It's femi- feminine, mistly. Is that a new word? Feministly? <laughs> I made it one. And being heirs together of the grace of God, the two become one. That your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be all of you of one mind having compassion for one another Love his brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. let's go to the example in the book of Genesis chapter twelve. Sarah we're told, obeyed Abraham, and she even called him Lord. So guys, when you go home today, you tell your wife you want to start to be called Lord of the house and <laughs> oh that'll really get that'll really get things going. <laughs> All right, Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. There was a famine, and so Abraham and Sarah are on their way to Egypt. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt, and he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it's going to happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abraham came to Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful the prince of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house and he treated Abraham well for her sake he had sheep and oxen, mill, donkeys male and female servants female uh, donkeys and camels but the Lord and there it is but the Lord what do we have going on so far? Um, honey, come here, Um, would you you lie for me so that I don't die? Now, a lot of women would say today, I thought your job was, first of all, you're lying, number one. Uh, Second of all, I thought your job was to protect me, and now you're turning it all around? I mean, she would have had a pretty good case going for her. He was lying, number one. He should have been looking to protect her. He's not doing that. He's concerned about his own skin. And she could have called him right out on it. And said, what are you doing? You're supposed to be my husband. But what did she do? She called him Lord and submitted and went along with the whole thing. So what does that trigger? Well, exactly what he thought would happen. He's taken into Pharaoh's, Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's household with the plans of marrying her. But it says, but the Lord plagues Pharaoh and his house with a great, plague because of Sarah Abraham's wife and Pharaoh called Abraham and said what is this that you've done to me why did you not tell me she was your wife Pharaoh's getting plagued who's doing the plaguing God you see she was obedient even when her husband was wrong Now I want to talk about this there's going to be times wives when you know your husband is dead wrong Most of the time. (laughs) And what does the Lord do? Well, because she was obedient and submitting to him, the Lord goes over her head and goes over right to the top, but God. The Lord takes care of it. And he says, She is, what did you say? She is my sister. I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go your way. And so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Old Testament example. Gals, even when they're wrong, say, Lord, he's wrong. You know it. I know it. Go get him. (laughs) You told me to submit to him. I'm doing it. But he's underneath Christ. And so, Lord, will you please take care of this matter, just like you did it with Sarah and Abraham? And uh, that's exactly what will happen. All right, let's um, go to chapter 8. I have one more. This is a really a change of thought and subject here. As we um, get into First Corinthians 8... Uh, The whole issue here is I got to take you back and remember that Corinth had no biblical um, understanding of idolatry and paganism and all the sexual immorality. So there were things that were being offered to idols as food. And uh, some of the Christians actually I said, what's the big deal? You know, It's nothing. An idol is nothing. That's what we're going to be reading here. And so I'm going to sum up, and then I want to give a, a little visual demonstration of what these 13 verses are all about. It's about Christian liberty. It's about people who know they have the freedom to even eat meat that has been offered to an idol but if you're a young Christian in the church of Corinth, you don't have that conviction. You've lived your whole life being aware of what you eat and don't eat in this pagan society. In other words, um, we, we got uh, somebody who is puffed up. We're gonna see the words puffed up here. And uh, he's strong in his faith. He says, I can do this, so I'm gonna do it. And um, the issue, issue is eating meat, are not eating meat. Everybody with me so far? Um, we were talking about this in the office and Mary came up with a one-liner for this. And rather than say the one-liner, I'm gonna show you the one-liner. Here's the one-liner right here. Ian is a vegetarian. He doesn't eat meat. He don't eat no meat. <laughs> no. He doesn't eat meat. What do you mean he don't eat no meat? <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. I make lamb. It's okay. I'll Go. make lamb. Go. <laughs> what you mean? You don't eat meat? <laughs> now we can read the chapter. I purposely did this for a couple reasons. I know that... Um, a lot of people have never read a biblical, b- biblical perspective on marriage and the different roles and relationships and the church unfortunately is not influencing society, the way, it's going the other way around. And so I realized it's been a, a stepping on a lot of people's toes that really aren't really biblically sound in their theology. And I thought, how can I lighten this up a little bit? And I thought, that'll work. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 8, now concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that Idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as they are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things. For we, for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as things offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But God does not condemn, commend us to God. But food does not commend us to God. For neither... If we eat, are we the better? Nor if we do not eat, are we the worse? But beware, lest someone, somehow, this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you uh, who have knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be um, emboldened to eat those things offered to idols question and because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish in other words it's nothing I, just, I i think of peter and the the food coming down from heaven and the lord saying peter rise up and kill and peter says not so lord i've never eaten anything that's common or unclean And the Lord says, what I've cleansed, don't you dare call common or unclean. It happened three times. What was on that picnic basket? All those things that would have um, defiled the conscience of any Jew, knowing the book of Leviticus, what's kosher and what isn't kosher. Everybody with me with that? That's what's going on here. But what he's pointing out is the arrogance of the one who has this freedom, who knows I can eat whatever I want to. Um, Pray for it, and um, what difference if it was offered to an idol or not an idol. It's not an issue. Let's finish the chapter. And because of your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish of whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I put in chapter eight because the day I started studying it, I was reading my wisdom for today and I open up and he's in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse one. I thought, how interesting. So I'm gonna close this morning by reading 1 Corinthians 8, one and Chuck's commentary on it. It's called Love That Builds. We know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. A division had developed in the Corinthian church. <clears throat> Some felt strong convictions against eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Others declared their freedom to eat such meat because, as they reasoned, we know the idols are nothing those with freedom looked down on those without uh, as being their inferiors. There will always be intellectual snobs. There are always those who feel intellectually superior to others and who ridicule them for following ignorant superstitions. But the prophet Isaiah wrote, your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you And and you have said in your heart, I am right, there is no other opinion. Paul addresses this issue in the Corinthian church with the warning that knowledge puffs up. We're told to walk in love. If we really walk in love, we will seek to build up the weaker brother. I won't try to convince him that he's wrong, nor will I flaunt my liberty before him and thus cause him to stumble. It's a dangerous thing to encourage someone to do something which violates their conscience. To urge them into doing something they feel is wrong. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. 1 Corinthians 8:12 and 13. This is walking in love. Don't go around flaunting your liberty and thus destroy a weaker brother. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, Lord, as we make our way through the scriptures, we're grateful that your word deals with every aspect and detail of life from your perspective. I pray for any of us this morning that um, struggled with uh, what your word declares about the married and the unmarried and um, we just pray Lord that um, we would just stand upon this scripture knowing that heaven and earth is going to pass away but not this book and if we find ourselves in disagreement with your word help us know that um, you're always right, and we have to admit, Lord, please work at our heart and help me come around to your way of, of thinking and standing upon that as the final authority. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.